can remember working in Indonesia 30 years ago where you, you, you couldn't talk about indigenous people's rights. And now, like it, one of the striking things about the uh, session this morning was how everybody was talking about indigenous people's rights. This is Francis Seymour, who I caught up to on the third day of year-end climate talks here in Glasgow, Scotland. In the weeks since, indigenous people have been front and center here, as they should be. After all, indigenous people have always been among the most responsible stewards of the land. This is one of the top three things that everybody's talking about. So that's, it's sort of a norm shift that it is no longer okay to talk about how we're going to protect forests unless we're talking about and what's going to be the role of indigenous peoples in respecting their rights. I first met Frances when she was Director General of the Center for International Forestry Research, or CIFOR. She also helped teach a forestry class that I took, and she co-wrote the book that I consider to be the Bible of Forestry, Why Forests, Why Now? The Science, Economics, and Politics of Tropical Forests and Climate Change. And I think the getting deforestation out of commodity supply chains is similarly norms evolution where, you know, before you could manufacture a candy bar or a bar of soap and have no worries about what impact it might have on the orangutans. Right. Now, because, you know, it's no longer okay. She's been in this fight for decades and she was in a pretty good mood when I talked to her last week. The reputational risk of being associated with that deforestation is increasing and broadening. And so that norm is seeping into some of the other previously less environmentally friendly economies and now into the financial sector. Year-end climate talks opened with a bang when 127 countries signed the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests and Land Use, a commitment to, quote, working collectively to halt and reverse forest loss and land degradation by 2030 while delivering sustainable development and promoting an inclusive rural transformation. Yeah, we've heard these pledges before, but this time, she says, is different, and I'm inclined to agree. may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we address it from the perspective of international cooperation to end deforestation with my guest, 
Frances Seymour in her capacity as Distinguished Senior Fellow with the World Resources Institute. I'm going to have to apologize again for the quality of my voice on this interview. I, I think it's my, my fancy new headset that's giving me trouble. Maybe you can help me buy a better one by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Now I bring you Francis Seymour. As exciting as this is, it, it has less meat on it than previous announcements that we've seen that delivered less. Yeah, you seem to be pretty excited about it. Let me be clear. What I'm excited about is having heads of state and leaders of major international organizations talking about forests, because I think we have a, a history of neglecting forests in global climate change policy and finance discussions. And so just having forests front and center is a good thing. And mm -hmm. we have a lot of, of catching up to do. So my excitement is probably more about that foregrounding of the issue than any specific uh, content in the announcement. You're right, we have a long history of pledges of this kind within the various international instruments. If I'm not mistaken, one of the targets under one of the sustainable development goals a number of years ago actually pledged to end deforestation by 2020. And the consumer goods forum companies had pledged to get deforestation out of their supply chains by 2020, that didn't happen. The New York Declaration on Forests, which included about 40 countries that signed on, pledged to the, to, to the 2030 target for halting deforestation and pledged to cut deforestation in half by 2020. And not only did that not happen, but deforestation went up in the yeah. meantime. So I think we can all be forgiven for having some fatigue over these commitments and pledges. We've been disappointed before. And so... The question is, are we at a Charlie Brown in the football moment where we're, we're going to get excited about kicking the ball and Lucy's going right. to pull it away at the last minute? Or might there be reasons for optimism that this time it, it could be different? And so let me um, articulate some of the reasons why it could be different. The first is that the sheer number of countries that signed up to this, like I said, New York Declaration on Forests, 40 countries, and, and now I think there are over 100 for this one. But it's probably less important the absolute numbers of countries as which countries have signed on this time that didn't sign up last time. And we have the addition of Brazil, which of course has the largest expanse of tropical forests, Russia, the large expanse of temperate and boreal forests. And we have China, which has the largest forest footprint in terms of its trade and investment you know, patterns as a participant in the global economy. So in terms of inclusiveness, I think this is, is certainly different than the, the New York Declaration on Forests. I think a second reason that it might be different is that it's intentionally embedded in a number of other initiatives that were announced this morning that are designed to change the whole system. And, and if you were listening when Boris Johnson gave his opening remarks, he talked about the need for system change. 
And I think that's exactly right. And among the six points in the declaration, the leader's declaration, there are some allusions to systems change, both in terms of national policy and international policy. And talks about aligning agricultural sector policy or shifting international financial flows and that kind of thing. And taken together with other things that were announced today, like all these financial institutions pledging to get deforestation out of their investment portfolios, that provides an additional impetus to countries to follow through on these commitments. Looking at, let's say, the LEAF Coalition announcement of a billion dollars of performance-based finance for forest-based emission reductions, again, providing an incentive to meet this target. So Putting these all together, I think that might be a cause for optimism. The truth is, at the end of the day, this declaration will not be self-implementing. It's one page. It doesn't have any accountability mechanism built into it. So its efficacy will be ultimately dependent on individual countries doing something different (laughs) than they're doing now. Because what's conspicuous is that quite a number of the countries that signed up to it have policies and practices in place now that are at variance with what, you know, they just agreed to. So hopefully it'll provide an opening to constituencies in those countries to say, hey, wait a minute, you just signed up to this pledge that mentions indigenous people's rights or that mentions aligning agriculture sector policies. What are you going to do differently? And I guess the last thing I'll say is I think the world is waking up to the importance of forests in moderating the climate in ways other than through the global carbon cycle. So the narrative 10 years ago is like, oh, we're asking countries like Brazil and Indonesia to stop deforestation as a favor to the rest of us to protect the global climate. Now we've had the experience of the catastrophic forest fires in Indonesia in 2015, which was a wake up call that, hey, wait a minute, this is a problem for Indonesia's economy. It's a problem for Indonesia's public health. So maybe we need to do something different. And it's not a Coincidence, I don't think that Indonesia's drop in deforestation was subsequent, you know, to those fires. And now we have research coming out about Brazil, that deforestation in Brazil is affecting rainfall patterns that could affect agricultural productivity. It's affecting temperature extremes that can affect productivity of soybeans. And so I think that there's an increasing awareness of the domestic self-interest in fulfilling these pledges and not just as part of global solidarity. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and in, in addition to that, there is just just the coverage of it is huge. I uh, remember when the New York Declaration of Forest came out, we covered it at Ecosystem Marketplace and we were alone, it, it scoffed at I, you know, by, by a lot of other publications. And I went to write this one up and everyone had gotten there ahead of me. I haven't written anything actually. It's all over. The, every paper has covered it. And that's huge. People are paying attention to it. People are focusing on it. And it's also, I wonder if it's possible to go back and look at this because i guess there's two directions to go one is it is i feel like the time is different now this year has just so much has changed i'm sitting here the the press room is jam-packed here in glasgow which it usually hasn't been at these cops until the, the last days it just feels like there's a lot more energy and awareness but there have been these pledges in the past you alluded to in one the the pledges to reduce deforestation by 2020 we did analysis on this. I remember we talked about this before, looking at what impact did these pledges have, deforestation overall. And what we found was that although the net impact was nothing, 
there were clear impacts in terms of specific supply chains. We found companies that did change, changed everything. And the problem was it just migrated over someplace else. But in a, but the systemic part that was in there was that there was more transparency. It used to be that you could, the company said, we don't know where our stuff comes from. We can't track it. You had to believe them because it was true. Now you can track it. You can see right where these soybeans come from. If they came from an area that was deforested, you have some kind of an impact there. And one of the lessons, too, that we had was that the companies that made these commitments, if they came out with time-bound and commitments with interim targets, they tended to be the ones that, that went ahead and, uh, and delivered. So I guess in something like this, even though this commitment itself is, might almost be just window dressing on the, you know, or a voice that kind of expresses this constellation that we're seeing, what can we do to make sure this delivers? Uh, are there were these old economy accountability measures too focused on companies? Was that the problem? You know, are, how are we going to see this kind of system change that that we need to have going forward? That's a great question. So I think there's a couple things going on alluded to that I would allude to in the context of your explaining what the lessons were from the last round of pledges, but also what might be different in going forward. The first thing that not everyone may be aware of is just what an incredible revolution in transparency we have experienced over the last 10 years, starting with the ability to observe what's going on in forests from satellites. That's still a relatively new phenomenon. It just wasn't that long ago that we were dependent on the reports that FAO published every five years based on self-reporting. And so now, you know, we are increasingly able to see exactly where deforestation is taking place. We are able to analyze more about what is driving that deforestation. Is it smallholder agriculture? Is it illegal logging? Is it commercial scale clearing for what commodities? We are able to trace um, that deforestation through commodity supply chains and financial you know, investors. And there's been a lot of civil society effort on that over the last 10 years, which makes that data actionable. And we also are able to analyze what interventions are effective. And so actually do analysis. To, I mean, there was this cool study that Global Forest Watch was the subject of a few months ago on what was the impact of empowering local communities with forest yeah. monitoring technology and capacity, right? You see this dramatic drop in deforestation in the very first yeah. year. And so it's, okay, this is an effective intervention. Do we have, you know, 12 uh, billion new dollars to spend on forest conservation. Here's something we can spend it on because we know it it works. I think that the efficacy of interventions based on that monitoring technology is a new thing. And so we need to, to be cognizant of that, as well as it being an accountability mechanism for the countries and the companies that have made a pledge. And I guess the second thing I would say is that I think we need to see all of these commitments as evidence of norm shifts. You know, how over time, what's okay or what's not okay changes. And I I can remember working in Indonesia 30 years ago where you, you, you couldn't talk about indigenous people's rights. You couldn't talk about illegal logging. Those things were Mm -hmm. topics. And now like one of the striking things about the 
uh, session this morning was how everybody was talking about indigenous people's rights. This is yeah. now one of the top three things that everybody's talking about. So that's, it's a norm shift that it is no longer okay to talk about how we're going to protect forests unless we're talking about and what's going to be the role of indigenous peoples in respecting their rights. And I think the getting deforestation out of commodity supply chains is similarly norms evolution where, you know, before you could manufacture a candy bar or a bar of soap and have no worries about what impact it might have on the orangutans. Right. Now, because, you know, it's no longer okay. The reputational risk of being associated with that deforestation is increasing and broadening. And so that norm is seeping into some of the other previously less environmentally friendly economies. And now, into the financial sector. So pretty soon it's no longer going to be okay if you're a big investment company to be exposed as having invested in companies that are illegally deforesting or whatever. And and eventually those norms that are generated through private voluntary action in response to activism will then translate into regulatory frameworks because we've all accepted that actually this is the way things should be organized. If you look up the word impatient in the dictionary, you'll find a little (laughs) picture of me. I'm very impatient about these things. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we can see a progression on some of these norms over time that the new technology has helped accelerate and the voluntary corporate commitments are a, a first step towards. Yeah. It's another interesting thing that I've seen in the last couple of years is how many executives I speak to who have been saying off the record that we need more regulation. They didn't want to say it publicly, but they're starting to. And now we're starting to see more and more executives not trying to say that the private sector is going to fix it all and it's voluntary. They're saying we need government to get on this. And um, I guess the question I want to go to on that is how, how do we, uh, is this does this jive with with what you're seeing everywhere, or is it just that I'm talking to guys, executives at companies that have always been ahead of the curve? There was a big thing in Manga Bay a few years ago about Indonesian companies and how a company might be might have a big a big commitment of its own, might be doing the right thing through its main company, but then through cousins and nieces and nephews, the same the same company is doing exactly the opposite. So I guess I'm wondering if I'm being overly optimistic with the fact that these executives are now coming out, so to speak. In fact, wasn't there an issue in Indonesia where there was pushback, right? The smaller companies pushed back against the big companies. And they were saying that the that these deforestation pledges were actually a way for the big companies to squeeze the little ones out. And as we get into these nitty gritty issues, what should we look for to make sure that these things are being worked out might be a better way of putting it rather than... Because it is so sticky. It seems so easy to say... We just need regulation, but I've just seen it. I've seen it so many times where you think you've got a regulation and then something goes sideways and you've seen it a lot longer and in a lot more detail and a lot closer up than I have. So how do we make sure we're not being Pollyanna-ish about this? How do we make sure we really are taking this moment, pushing it forward and and not uh, letting it slip away? That's a great set of questions, and we could probably do a three-day workshop on this and not, uh, <laughs> not exhaust the, 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 the topic. <laughs> Um, As I said before, I think that this battle will be won or lost in the domestic political economy of each country. And it's not specific to forest countries and forests. And it's important to remember that countries are not monolithic. There are lots of diverse uh, stakeholders and perspectives 
even within the business sector and within the governments, as well as, as within civil society. So the question is, what, if anything, can the international community do to help empower those stakeholders, whether they are indigenous peoples or businesses that are trying to be sustainable to win the argument of the day? You're right in remembering the history in Indonesia of the Indonesian palm oil pledge. That was, was it, yeah. At about the time of the New York Declaration on Forests, in fact, it was around that same period, and there was a real reaction to that. And we actually heard echoes of it in Jokowi's, the president of Indonesia's remarks in the head of state segment, warned of the danger of using climate change as a protectionist instrument. That was an inappropriate thing. And warning about that they didn't want to have certification standards unilaterally imposed on them and that sort of thing. So I think that sensitivity is still very much alive and is the reason that one of the elements of this overall package announced today included this fact dialogue, which Indonesia is co-chairing, which is an attempt to structure a constructive conversation between producer countries and consumer countries about what are the rules of the road in terms of embedding some of these things in trade agreements to to avoid that. I missed that. Um, I didn't hear what the fact, what's it called? The fact dialogue? It's the fact dialogue. Mm-hmm. It was generated in the run-up to the COP, but it's been a, a, a structured set of discussions between a, a subgroup of producer and consumer countries to talk about these sensitive issues about how do you deal with an issue like deforestation in the context of, of commodity trade. Um, and that, I guess that's, that's one of those systemic issues that's where there's an intersection between what the international community can do and the domestic political economy. Yeah, yeah. And it's very challenging and will take time. Mm-hmm. Are there any any things we've tried in the past that you can say have failed and we should write them off? Or is it still an issue of we need all hands on deck, all tools at our disposal? I think we have learned some lessons over time about under what conditions things can be effective. And in fact, there's a new paper that was just published a few weeks ago about some research on the, it matters, the sequencing of the different Mm. interventions that you do to address deforestation and the importance of government regulation being the, the, the backbone for other kinds of interventions. And that's consistent with my own experience. And so in terms of what hasn't worked, I'm very much on record as being a believer in this performance-based finance yep. model. Mm-hmm. And some people will say, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. Red Plus is a failure and all that. But my view is that we actually haven't tried it yet in terms of having right. you know, market-based finance at scale at an attractive price in a business-to-business transaction as opposed to a foreign aid-driven um, kind of relationship. And I think that's the significance of the LEAF Coalition announcement today, that they have mobilized a billion dollars and are moving ahead with letters of intent with the first few countries um, to actually reward performance with finance. And these are advanced purchase commitments, right? It's we will reward you for reduction starting in 2022. So I think that's going to be a really interesting um, model to watch. There's also been a lot of discussion about how do we reconcile the model of Red Plus as a jurisdictional scale, in other words, at the accounting at the, for performance at the level of entire country or a large subnational jurisdiction like a state or a province, 
with the need to attract private investment into individual site-based activities and the need to have benefits flow directly to you know, indigenous and local communities in particular places. And that's one of those challenging things to work out. But I think it's pretty clear that isolated stand- standalone projects scattered in the landscape they can do great things for those individual communities or that particular national park or biodiversity right. hotspot. But individually, they can't address those fundamental, you know, systemic drivers of, of forest loss. So strategically combining those community scale interventions with the jurisdictional scale incentives, financial and otherwise, to governments to do what only governments can do, enforce the law, yeah. regulate corporations, change physical incentives. That's going to be the trick. And again, the international community can provide some incentives and can provide some technical support to get that done. But at the end of the day, it's going to have to be worked out within each individual country in a way that's consistent with their legislative framework and their land rights regime and, and all those things. Yeah. Nesting individual projects within jurisdictions. I think it's important to, to make it clear to people that that was never the, the intent to have individual projects be like this. It was just that it took so long to get the jurisdictional stuff going. And a lot of projects went into the most difficult situations, and then we, we bring in the jurisdictions later. And you mentioned scale and price. We have not tried Red Plus at all. We've tested it on little projects, which have their obvious limitations. We haven't really done it at a jurisdictional level, except a few places, but even that was at a low low price point. Your co-author on that book, Why Forest, Why Now, Jonah Bush, did some really interesting analysis on what happens at different price points. I don't know if, did you see that paper or thought that was very interesting about is as prices go up, it, at this point, it's only helping the people who really want to save forests, but don't have the means to do it. It's helping them achieve what they want to do. But as you get higher and higher, it starts to become something that really competes on opportunity costs and things like that. So it's, and I thought it was interesting too, that the Leaf Coalition has embedded in it, this mechanism that as prices go up, the money doesn't go to the brokers who buy and sell and buy and sell. It goes back to the communities which is very interesting. There's so many interesting, nifty little things that 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 are kicking in now through this evolutionary process. I asked what we should abandon, what doesn't work, but what do you see as the, the most exciting innovation? You probably don't want to single any one out, but what do you see as, what are some of the things that like I just talked about the, with the Leaf Coalition, we talked about nesting. What do you see as the as another promising development that that makes all of this stuff seem doable and maybe hasn't gotten as much attention as it should have until now. I think it, it, it's precisely that combination. I think we're on the cusp of figuring out how to combine the community scale action. This research I was mentioning about the empowering local communities with the forest monitoring technology, right? We've been able to see from satellite for a while now that indigenous territories have the most intact forests, right? So we know that the presence of indigenous peoples is associated with maintaining forest cover and that if you secure the rights of those indigenous territories, the effectiveness goes up. And if we can empower those communities with the forest monitoring technologies, that's that's going to help. So definitely we need activities at that local scale. But as I said, we also need the government backup to enforce the law and policy change to to stop the various drivers of resource exploitation that are currently making incursions into those indigenous territories. And I think there is promise that the demand for forest-based emission reductions and removals, such as those that the the LEAF Coalition um, is, is providing, can actually provide that incentive. And I think 
There's a missing middle between those national level incentives for governments and the local level efficacy of local community stewardship that we're going to have to bridge in this nesting process. And I don't mean just nesting commercial Red Plus projects, but nesting local governments, nesting right. indigenous territories you know, in, into a, a broader, large scale system. And it's going to be hard. It's going to take time. Ultimately, it's a political negotiation over how do you share the benefits. And there turn out to be a lot of challenges. I should disclose that in addition to my role at World Resources Institute, I, in my personal capacity, chair the board of the Architecture for Red Plus Transactions, which, of course, is the standard for issuing credits for jurisdictional scale emission reductions and removals that the LEAF Coalition has adopted as its standard of quality um, for Mm -hmm. that that supply. And in that context, I've learned a ton (laughs) about some of the technical details um, of how to apply such a standard and the consequences of tweaking a method one way or another. Yeah. And one of the things that we addressed in the development of version 2.0 of the TREE standard, the Red Plus Environmental Excellence Standard that we published in, in August, is this challenge of how do we incentivize reward for indigenous territories when current crediting mechanisms for Red Plus don't reward people who have done a good job of preserving their forests. And and I was thinking of that this morning, hearing the president of Gabon speak, right? Because one of the things he said was, is that we need to have incentives for carbon positive countries. And talking about a country like Gabon that has preserved most of its forests, and yet is punished for having done so by not having a baseline against which to get you know, forest exactly, carbon yeah, credits. Yeah. And it's the same problem for indigenous territories. I think there are a lot of these kinds of issues that need to be addressed both internationally, but also within national benefit sharing regimes. You might not want to necessarily just mechanically allocate carbon credits based on emission reductions, because then you would disadvantage the indigenous you know, communities or, or not give them enough incentive to, to continue. So uh, there are a lot of challenges like that ahead, but it's exciting. It's exciting yeah. to be part of an effort to do that because I do think we've learned a whole lot and we, we know it's important. We know what works. We're increasingly appreciating all the co-benefits that we get from mm-hmm. protecting forests above and beyond, you know, keeping the carbon in the trees. And it's just a, it's, it's just an exciting time to be working on it. Like a lot of us, I got into this in part because of indigenous people protecting their land and Red Plus appealed to me as a way of helping them. That was actually what what kind of drew me into it. And this whole challenge of how people who have been protecting the land are being shortchanged. It's such a tough one. There was just this expose by Carbon Market Watch where they were criticizing some projects in Colombia for maybe exaggerating the baseline because the indigenous people hadn't been deforesting. It was a sticky one because in a way, technically, they may have been correct in their critique. I couldn't really dig deep enough to know. But at the same time, that was the whole point. These indigenous people, they've been fighting the good fight. They've been getting killed. They've been getting slaughtered to to protect their forests. And now they're being punished for that. Um, Some people have said maybe red isn't the mechanism for that. But that's what got me into it. Do you have any ideas on this? How, how can we do it within the framework of RED as it's emerged so far? Is it just jurisdictional stuff? Is it benefit sharing within a, a jurisdictional program? Do you have any ideas on that? Or is that 
that's also probably a whole different discussion. It, it is a whole different discussion. I will say that this is one of those where reasonable people can disagree. And you can look at the version 2.0 of the art tree standard and see that having gone through not one, but two rounds of public consultation on how to credit HFLD jurisdictions, we actually... HFLD is high forest, low deforestation. Countries like Gabon. And we decided that we did want to include a special crediting methodology for jurisdictions that qualified as HFLD. And we, an innovation is a, a way to define an HFLD jurisdiction. It's a combined score of the remaining forests left and the rate of deforestation. So once you meet the, the eligibility of being defined an HFLD country, you can get a top up of your crediting based on that. And some people would say that's not additional, right? But we decided that that actually it was legitimate because, first of all, it's extremely conservative. It's very highly discounted. But also, there is science out there that shows how if you start chipping away at an intact forest, the value of these large areas of forest mm-hmm. is um, the climate benefits that we currently credit under Red Plus in those cir- circumstances is a dramatic underestimate. So in my view, this is a crude proxy to reward that, but it's conservative. So I'm not troubled about environmental integrity issues. And I also believe that we need to start thinking about the entire earth as a jurisdiction. And if we incentivize the countries that are currently deforesting to stop, and we don't incentivize those who've been protecting forests to continue to do so, guess what? we'll have leakage going into those places that have so far been protected. And so thinking of crediting for these HFLD jurisdictions as something of a a risk management tool to maintain the forest we still have while reducing the deforestation in places where it's been rampant is probably a good strategy. Now, wouldn't it be great if the Convention on Biodiversity liberated gajillions of dollars to fund maintaining forests? Yeah, sure. That would be awesome. I don't really see that in prospect, to be honest. So this may be a a second best approach. Francis Seymour closing out this edition of Bionic Planet, coming to you today from year-end climate talks in Glasgow, Scotland. A final reminder, if you like what you hear and you want to hear more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address, again, is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. If you want to make a larger donation, I'm also fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer or a second set of ears. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. 
www.thegreatdetective.com. Finally, you can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Glasgow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.